0: Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.
1: Welcome to hour number two of the World According to Zig podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I'm your host. This is the show where we talk about the news of the week. And the events of my often bizarre life and where we provide you with a full two-hour oasis of honesty and rationality in the desert of insanity and deceit which is the american media cultural and political landscape our number two is generally where we do our weekly interview last week we interviewed democratic congressman john yarmouth in a fascinating discussion which you can find on our website freespeechbroadcasting.com i'm looking forward also to this week's interview with an equally fascinating guest, he is General Michael Hayden. He's the former director of national the National Security Agency and the former director of the CIA. Uh, he has worked for three different presidents, uh, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. He wrote a book, "Playing the Edge," and uh, boy, there's an awful lot to talk about with General Michael Hayden. General Hayden, welcome to the podcast.
2: Thanks a lot, John. And you're right; we got lots of stuff.
1: <laughs> Let's get right to it now, General Hayden. You were one of the uh, fifty non democrat security experts who signed a letter during the presidential campaign saying basically that donald trump was a threat to national security what made you feel that way and have you what so far based upon what you've seen since this election has made you feel either more or less concerned about a trump presidency
2: sure john i mean i based that decision and frankly said so at the time that if he governed in any way consistent with the language he has used as a candidate. I think we all have a right to be very, very concerned. And, and since I had no other metric of the man than the things he said, I, I was quite nervous. Now, but remember my premise, if he governs the way that he has spoken. So now he's been president for nine days and, of course, you had that gap between the election day and the inauguration. So. We're beginning to learn a little bit about how we govern. So let me give you the good news. I've actually been very impressed with most of his cabinet choices and sub-cabinet choices, particularly in the kind of what I call the power ministries, you know, defense, homeland security, state, CIA, director of national intelligence. I I think that's a very strong team, and I've been really heartened by, by those choices. Now, it's also been really interesting, John, that when these folks go up there and testify for their confirmation hearing, they don't sound very much like the president right. when, it comes, when it comes to the European Union or NATO or the importance of alliances and, and so on. And so now the question becomes, how will the new administration govern? How much power will, will these, I think, admittedly, vary? strong selections, how much power will they actually have compared to a group within the White House about whom I have a lot less confidence? And John, that's what's been playing out over the last nine days, and particularly over the last two days.
1: Well, bottom line, General Hayden, do you feel more or less confident than when you signed that letter during the campaign?
2: I I am no more, my, my concerns have not been allayed, and I must admit, A couple of events, the visit the CIA, Saturday last, what's gone on in the last 48 hours, has pushed me more in the direction of, you know, I think he's going to govern the way he talks. And of course, that was my premise.
1: For being concerned. Now, let's talk about some of those things. We'll get to the CIA speech uh, momentarily, but I want to kind of go in in order here. During the transition, President-elect Trump refused to accept the intelligence community uh, which and obviously used to be the director of the CIA, the, the intelligence community's conclusion that Russia attempted to help Trump win the election and even compared your old agency, Trump did to Nazi Germany. What was your reaction to that entire episode?
2: Uh, well, okay. Once I got over the anger and, and then tried to kind of decompose it, John, and analyze it, there's going to be a little bit of a long answer, but John, I think it's really important for me okay. to share with you and, sure. and your listeners. All right. Look, we we always have a problem with what i call the policy guys okay i mean look the intel guys gotta get in the same room with the policy guys but they come through a different door john we're the fact guys all right they're the vision people and they should be we're the world as it is gang they're the world as we would like it to be we're inherently inductive we swim in a sea of data and create general conclusions policymakers and any of them president bush president obama president trump they're deductive. They want to take their first principles, you know, the ones that got them elected, and apply them to a specific circumstance. And then finally, John, truth be told, we're inherently pessimistic, policymaker, generally optimistic. Otherwise, they wouldn't interview for the job. So that happens every time. All right. We knew it was going to be really hard this time, John, because those things I said about the policy guy, not fact-based, vision, deductive, world as we want it to be, we, we got... in in triplicate with President Trump. He has an incredible confidence in what I call his own a priori assumptions and narrative about how the world works. Mm -hmm. And so it was always going to be hard, John, for the fact-based guys to punch through that and convince him that his vision might not actually be correct. Now, John, the great tragedy of this Mm -hmm confrontation, battle, struggle, conversation, the great tragedy of that, which was always going to take place, John, it took place on an issue that other people were using to challenge his legitimacy as the president of the United States. Right. That is an absolute perfect storm. So, so John, I'm worried about the Russia thing, okay? I don't know that he really gets it. But, John, what I'm really worried about is... Can the fact-based inductive world, as it is, Intel guys, break through? How does the new president process information that he doesn't like? Right. In the last nine days, I haven't made me very comfortable about that.
1: Well, General Hayden, let's talk a little about Russia. Uh, a couple weeks ago, there was a great deal of attention to a, a story that has amazingly basically disappeared regarding an intelligence briefing that then-President Obama and President-elect Trump apparently got regarding possible efforts by Russian intelligence to compromise or blackmail Trump. What is right. your evaluation of that dossier, which created so much controversy?
2: So, so John, real important to separate that dossier, I'm going to get to that in 30 seconds, from the intelligence judgment of the American intelligence community that the Russians stole the emails, weaponized the data, used it to mess right. with your head and mind, and I think in the end affect the election outcome, although no one can know right. whether it did or not, so we're done talking about that. Right. Now, with regard to the other thing, it's not American intelligence. It's a dossier put together by a former MI6 British intelligence officer whom I can tell you had a pretty solid reputation. And And when I read it, without giving any validation for what it said, John, when I read it, it felt like our stuff, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And but, but, John, the part of our stuff that it felt like was the stuff that we put labels on top and bottom. This is raw, unevaluated information. This is not finished intelligence. And so if that were our stuff, if we had gotten that from our sources, we'd have then started holding that up to the light and, and asking questions like, so the guy who told you this, Would he reasonably be expected to know this? Has he reported reliably in the past? Do we have other sources that seem to reinforce this particular story? That's the stuff that goes on. And and, and frankly, John, as near as I can tell, that effort has not yet driven anyone to conclude that any part of that dossier is true.
1: Well, General Hayden, as a former director of the CIA, could you help us understand what we might be able to conclude about that dossier simply from the fact that it was indeed apparently in some form presented to the president and the president-elect. What does that tell you?
2: So, so here we are. And, and, and John, I think the key to this next minute or two is we all have to understand, all right, we are off the map here. Okay. We right. don't have a chart. We don't know where <laughs> we're going. This has never happened before. Right. And so, so what you had with this vile, dossier out there. And, John, let's be very candid, right? That's been rattling around out there for six months. I can't tell you how many people bought me breakfast breakfast, asking me if I knew anything about it. OK, right, right. so it's been out there a lot. And I think at the end of it, someone made the decision. And, and this is the right way to put it, John. We owed it to the president elect to tell him this is out there, that if we had it, other intelligence services could have it, and he needed to know that, frankly, to protect himself.
1: Well, well General Hayden, do, do you believe that Russia does, in fact, have compromising information on Trump? And do you agree that, at the very least, he's acting towards Russia in a way consistent with them having <laughs> such intelligence?
2: So you gave me two questions. Number one, remember the fact-based guys, John? Right. Inductive, What was it is. I, I got no data. And right. therefore, i got no conclusion okay. as to whether or not they've got anything. Now, to your second question, why does he act the way he does? I cannot explain it. I, I wrote an article for The Washington Post right before the election in which I, I try to connect the dots, you know, the things you're suggesting, and his refusal to criticize Putin and, and, and so on. And, and I finally ended up saying, you know, I think he might be what the Soviets used to call a Pelesny Durak. Uh, The translation is useful idiot or useful fool. Uh, In the West, during the Soviet period, we used to call them fellow travelers, remember? And, And it's someone who's naive, who doesn't know that he's being manipulated then by the Soviets, now by the Russians. He's actually someone whom the Russians and the Soviets hold in contempt. He's actually pretty useful. And I I wrote that, and and I knew that was going to offend a lot of people, John, so so I ended the the, the op-ed by simply saying, and I know this is going to offend a lot of people, and I apologize, but frankly, that's the most benign interpretation I can come up with right now.
1: But do you agree, General Hayden, and this doesn't prove anything, but if Russia did have compromising information on Donald Trump, it would be hard to imagine how he would be acting any differently than he has been. Would you agree with that assessment?
2: You know, John, I I, I I get it, and I've explained that I can't explain why he's, right. why he's acting that way. So I I you know I do not want to get out there. I mean, look, one of the worst things for an intel guy Fair is to make someone like you believe they're more confident in their conclusions <laughs> than they should be. And John, that's what we did with the Iraq NIE. Got so it. I I've got been, it. I've been burned.
1: I, I, got, go it. I got it. I got. All right. So let's go back to something you talked about uh, previously. Obviously, as the former director of the CIA, I'm sure you were very interested to see last week that President Trump went to the CIA and in front of the memorial there made what I and many others have described as a bizarre speech in which he focused mostly on himself. The crowd there seemed to react very positively, but the yeah. former CIA director, John Brennan, had an extremely negative reaction to it. As another former CIA director, what was your reaction?
2: So, uh, no pun intended, John disaster, total disaster. All right. I can't think of a worse speech for the president to give at CIA. And frankly, I give him high marks for going. All right. That he needed to do that. And that was a good thing. But I think it was an uh, an opportunity missed when he w- when he was there. I'll give you a couple of excerpts. All right. He's standing in front of the stars on the wall, 117 CIA officers killed on the line of duty. John, one third of them since 9-11, he makes an opening gesture to the stars, interrupts himself in mid-sentence, starts talking about something else, and never gets back to the sacrifices that those stars represent. And then we talked about uh, crowd size and being very smart and, and feeling young. And then then the one, remember the fact-based guys thing, John? Sure. And, and then the one that I think really would have stuck is that he then claimed that this so-called feud between him and the intelligence community was made up by the Lion Press. Um, John, any sentient American knows that that's not true. No, oh, by the way, John, he, was, he had his back to the Wall of Stars, all right? That meant he was facing across the concourse to a quotation from the Gospel of John, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free. I, I, again, Opportunity lost. Now, with regard to the, the, the crowd size, the crowd reaction, um, look, these people work for the president, they're proud to work for the president, and John, it was self-selected. The agency sent an email out on Thursday saying that the president was going to come. And if anybody wanted to come, hit the return button right now and sign up. So what you got was a self selected group that I assume, you know, had a higher than average supporter of President Trump. No, by the way, John. We're a reflection of America. There are right. a lot of supporters of President Trump out there.
1: Sure, no, I get it. But I, I'm, I'm guessing, correct me if I'm wrong, that as the former director of the CIA, you must have had some conversations this week with, with people in the agency or maybe people that were there. What can you tell us about what was going on behind the scenes, uh, both at that speech and in the, in the reaction within the agency yeah. to it?
2: I, you know, John, I've not, I've not gone back. I, I, I try not, since you know, since I do stuff like this, I want to have a clear conscience that I can speak my mind and not try to parse out what people have told me told me privately. I I was sure with you, John, that on the surface I was a bit disappointed with some of the reaction to some of the lines, not the applause for the president, but when he bashed the press, you know, there there that was kind of a laughter and applause line, which make, makes me a little uneasy given First Amendment kind of things that are right. that are that are very important. I wouldn't read too much into the crowd reaction. Given the circumstances, you know, the, the total number of people who work at CIA is classified. There's a big number, John. Right. You had 350 to 400 there.
1: I understand. All right. Now, General Hayden, uh, this weekend, which you've already, I think, alluded to this, uh, at least indirectly, President Trump signed another executive order supposedly banning immigrants from seven mostly Muslim countries, though there's great confusion over what the real policy is, what real impact it may have. Which, in your view, General Hayden, is the more troubling aspect of it, uh, of this whole executive order, that it exists at all or that it does not include several countries which would seem to be at the top of the list of those of which pose the greatest terroristic danger?
2: Yeah, I can I can criticize it tactically, John, because why these seven, not some others. But but at the macro level, it's because it exists. Let, let me cut to the bottom line and you can follow up with questions. Um, america is less safe today than it was friday morning before the executive order was published wow all right well tell us why
1: tell us why i'm curious that's a very interesting statement
2: we we rely on people of the islamic faith to keep our citizens safe abroad and at home The, the underlying current of the executive order and frankly some of the things said about the executive order coming out of the white house was that this was a them against us thing, that we had a clash of civilizations, which several senior members in the White House have explicitly said, you know, the president himself as a candidate said, they hate us, they all hate us. And then when he was pressed on, he said, well, a lot of them hate us. John, that's the narrative of our enemy. Our enemy says there is undying enmity between Islam and what you and I call the West, the modern world, Christendom crusaders, in, in, in their words. That's not true. We're not at war with Islam. We're at war with this little faction within Islam that's actually growing in strength. And they're growing in strength because their story, these people are our enemy, is getting traction with other Muslims. And so now, John, how how does the station chief, and you pick your Arab country, work with his Arab partner? How does the American soldier in Iraq? turned to the you know the squad that he's advising after they've read all about this on in on their twitter account how do you go how do you go to an american muslim uh, in a city and and ask them to be even more forthcoming in reporting suspicious behavior we've made all of those things more difficult and john the worst part of it is the executive order wasn't addressing what anyone in the counterterrorism community believes is a real problem. John, the CIA, the DNI, State Department, Homeland Security, the National Counterterrorism Center, CIA's Counterterrorism Center, they weren't banging in the door in the West Wing saying, Mr. Trump, Mr. Trump, we've got to make changes. This all came from the political advisors of the president based upon his campaign promises. And might I add, John, his campaign rhetoric were I actually would give you the fact-based judgment. He overhyped the threat, and now we're responding to a threat that was overhyped in a way that's going to make it harder for us to cooperate with the only people who can make us winners in this war, our Muslim friends. And oh, yeah, one more thing, John. On the humanitarian level, it's an abomination. We should be ashamed of ourselves.
1: So just to be clear, General Hayden, you believe that because of this executive order— that we are more likely to be hit by a terrorist attack at some point Absolutely. in the future?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. Look, look, John, you already said it's targeting a small group of people. It's it's not letting any refugees in the country, and there's no historic record of any refugees actually killing an American since 9-11. Um, what we have done is, is try to fix a problem that I don't think was the problem, and the thing that was our problem self-radicalized individuals in the United States because of, of a vision they had that we are at war with their religion. We just made that worse.
1: So, General Hayden, do you believe that this executive order is
2: more showbiz or more policy? Um, I, I think it's, it's policy and politics, if not operations and intelligence, John. As I said, this didn't come from the professionals saying, Mr. President, we got to fix this, which happened to quite a few things I had with President Bush. This, this came out of the small circle of political advisors at, in the White House. And, and John, I, like I said, I'm, I don't go back for briefings and call people still in government. But if the press accounts are to be believed, this thing is shoved out the door without talking to state or Homeland Security.
1: Well, let's talk I mean, about, let's, General Hayden, yeah. let's talk about one of the people who is getting credit or blame uh, for this and other executive actions or orders, uh, Steve Bannon. Uh, he was named uh, to a permanent seat on the National Security Council yesterday, oh, by the way. Uh, a guy who used to run Breitbart.com. I, I, I know him. I've, I've had dinner with the guy, uh, completely unimpressed. I spoke to a person who worked for him at Breitbart who thinks that the idea of him being on the National Security Council is lunacy. Are they right?
2: I am made very uncomfortable by the choice uh, act. Actually, John, uh, in my in my speeches that I give, I know I'm trying to people ask me ask me the question. You ask me, where is this going? And, and one of the things I called a tell, you know, what's going to predict where this is going, was going to be the role of Steve Bannon in security issues. And I reminded folks that Carl Rove. Who's, you know, kind of in that bloodline, right? That right. Karl Rove was never in a meeting with George Bush that I cared about. Huh. And now, we're, I think David Axelrod was in more for President Obama. And now, although, although he did not have an ex-officio seat on the NSC, but in the executive order that came out Friday, Bannon is a charter member of the National Security Council and, John, the all-important principles committee. And I might add, The presence of the Director of National Intelligence and the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at principal meetings is at the discretion of Mike Flynn.
1: What do you make of Mike Flynn, by the way? Uh,
2: I I knew Mike in service. He was incredibly talented, uh, operationally, tactically brilliant. He underpinned Stan McChrystal's successful campaign against al-Qaeda and and the Taliban. He deserves all the credit that he's getting for that. I just don't know that that life experience, John prepares an individual for the job he now has. John, hiring... He seems
1: to be too political and a bit of a conspiracy nut to me for that job. Well,
2: well, yeah, I mean, that's out there, too, and I must admit that doesn't make me enthusiastic, but I'm trying to stay structural on you here, okay? <laughs> so if, you're not, if you're not hiring a Kissinger or a Brzezinski or a Scowcroft, I don't, think, I don't think anybody's accusing President Trump of doing that. Right. Um, that job is the process job. It's, it's the job that tees up the issues, make sure the president gets them in time, that, that he gets them in a way that reflects the opinions of all of the, the people who should legitimately have an opinion on this. And, John, you just mentioned, Mike seems to have strong ideological preferences. My prayer and hope is they don't get in the way of being the process meister, which is really what that job is.
1: All right, General Hayden, couple real quick questions before we, yeah. we let you go because I know you, you got to give a speech. Um, you know, one of the things, one of the many things that has never, to my knowledge, because I haven't seen it much and I read about almost everything, hasn't gotten much attention. And maybe I'm miscalculating here, but I'm sure you'll tell me. One of the things that has not gotten much attention is the fact that the Trump name is on buildings all over this country and the world. Yeah. Based upon your experience as CIA director, how appealing a target will those buildings be for terrorists during the trump presidency and what should be our obligation to protect them and respond to any attacks against them
2: well so uh, i do think that uh, having the trump label label makes it more attractive for people who would will us They'd like to go after the iconic john all right that's why the world trade center that's why the pentagon and nothing could be more iconic than a a flashy hotel somewhere around the world with our president's name on it and so and so I, I do think we owe it to the president, to the people who work for him, the people in those buildings, to recognize that the probability of being attacked there might actually be a little bit higher than the Marriott down the street, all right? Now, that, that that's just based what we call threat-based intelligence. That's right. just fact-based stuff. That's not favoritism, right. all right? But we owe the same level of protection to all American, American-labeled, American- attached facilities around the world it just might be an attack on that is a little more likely
1: it was reported this week that trump is still using an unsecured android phone to tweet with among other things which yeah. uh, which some have suggested is a far greater risk to national security than what hillary clinton did with her private email server while secretary of state would you recommend the president stop this uh this this procedure
2: Absolutely, and this is this is deja vu all over again, John, because President Obama ran his campaign from his blackberry, uh, and back eight years ago, we tried to talk him out of using the blackberry, and he reminded us that he carried Ohio, and uh, he wasn't going to give up his blackberry totally and and so what we were able to do was to. Get him to voluntarily limit his usage a little bit, and frankly, let us have it for a little bit to make it a bit more secure. Now, John, let me tell you the backstory on that because it's far more important than you know the BlackBerry. The backstory on that was that we were telling the soon-to-be most powerful man and the most powerful country on earth that if he used his personal communications device in his own national capital, he should expect his emails, texts, and SMSs to be intercepted by a host of foreign intelligence agencies
1: that's not changed. All right. And last two questions. Bottom line, this for us, General Hayden, uh, you've raised a lot of concerns about a, a Trump presidency. I think a lot of people out there are, who are not experts like you are, are struggling with, all right, How concerned should I be? I I don't know. Maybe you can put it on a scale of 1 to 10. I mean, as you've already referenced, we're in uncharted territory here. But how how concerned should the average person be about where we are here with the issue of Trump and national security?
2: So uh, my first response, John, is give him time. We're nine days into this. I already told you I was heartened by his choices. Right. And so let's see how powerfully these choices play in his decision making. Frankly, John. In my point of view, this is a pretty bad week you know Mexico and and right. and, and, and the executive order and the restructuring right. of the NSC, but almost none of those guys are on board and so let's or, or if they're on board just barely on board right so you know I, I, I'm critical I feel free that I, I can actually respectfully point out I don't think that's a good thing but I, but I do try to keep a portion of my mind open to the fact that it's still early. people learn in the job and he does have. In the in the agencies and the departments, I think a lot of talent.
1: General Hayden, I'm curious as a as a guy who's an independent, conservative minded uh, uh, person with an amazing background, former director of the CIA, worked for three different presidents. I would think that like an, a media organization like Fox News would be clamoring to have you comment <laughs> on relevant issues. I'm curious, has your anti-Trump views had an impact on something like that happening?
2: Um. No, 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 I don't think so. I'm probably a little lighter on Fox, but no overall reduction. And I still get invited on Fox. I'm good friends with people there, Brett Baer, right. uh, Brian, Brian Kilmeade, and, and so on. And, we, you know, we, we have informal discussions, too. So, look, I feel as if uh, that, you know, I'm just going to call balls and strikes. Good all right. You. And if people want me to come on, uh, I'll come on. I've been on MSNBC, CNN. Right. Uh, Fox, I will not go on R T, Russian television, but that should be right. you know, for reasons that that should be obvious. I, I just remember other people at Fox. I think Dana Perino is 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 a very solid uh right. commentator there. And, and so done. I, I don't have a campaign. I don't plan this. I just answer the phone and frankly, I say no more than I say yes.
1: Well well, thank you for saying yes to this. And and last thing, <laughs> I know you're I know you're a big football fan and a big Steeler fan. Sorry they're not in the Super Bowl. Who do you like in the Super Bowl?
2: I cheer for anybody playing the Patriots.
1: <laughs> Fair enough. Gen- General Michael Hayden, thanks so much for your time, and, uh, and I, w- I hope we'll be able to keep in touch.
2: Okay, John. Thank take you. Care,
1: take care. That's uh, General Michael Hayden, a former director of the CIA, with some very, uh, very interesting things. And I think it's clear that uh, General Hayden, as he says, is calling balls and strikes. He doesn't have an agenda here. Here's a guy who has uh, generally he's considered to be a Republican conservative, although he refers to himself as an independent. And, uh, you know, he's hopeful. He's hoping for the best for Donald Trump. But he's just pointing out, hey, look, uh, there's some cause for concern here. And I think the most uh, remarkable thing he said is that we are less safe today than we were on Friday before this executive order regarding the so-called Muslim ban, although it's not really a Muslim ban, it's a ban on immigration, supposedly, from seven mostly Muslim countries. Um, in hour number one of this week's podcast, I talk in detail about my, my general sense of that whole story. So if you're curious about my opinions on that, check out hour number one of this week's podcast. He mentioned the Super Bowl there. And in our last few moments of this hour number two, there are a couple of sports-related stories that, that I do want to chime in on, especially since this is Super Bowl week, you know, the Super Bowl has become in many ways uh, the most important cultural event of the year. And it's not just because it's the NFL championship game and because football has become the new national pastime over the last couple of decades, but it's because of how fragmented our, our entire society and specifically our media has become. Because we now have 500 different TV channels and a million different websites, we are so balkanized demographically, we are so fragmented media-wise, we have almost no communal events. In fact, the only real communal events we have anymore are really, really bad things that happen, disasters that occur, things like 9-11. That was obviously as communal event as you're going to get. But on a yearly basis, nothing compares to the Super Bowl, which then makes it inherently even more important. Because other than maybe holidays like Christmas, I mean, Christmas is a communal event. Halloween, I guess, is a communal event. Fourth of July, things like that. But really, from, an, from an, you know for a few hours, period of time, the Super Bowl is almost it. And the Super Bowl can tell us a lot about who we are as a people. By the way, I, there's one thing I say every year about the Super Bowl, which tells us so much about the way we view news, is that the pregame show for the Super Bowl will be at least five hours. It'll be longer than that if you count the other channels that are related to it. There'll be two weeks of hype for it. And then 20 minutes after the game is over, the network will cut to whatever TV show they want to show to, to promote for the, for the uh, spring lineup. And by Monday afternoon, you're going to have to think for two or three seconds to even remember who the hell won the game because it will be so over. It'll be so in the distant past. And I've talked about this before, but it's an important point, and it's more dramatic in sports than it is elsewhere but it, i think it has an influence in every aspect of life including politics and i think by the way donald trump benefits enormously from this short attention span phenomenon because no matter what trump does or says it's forgotten about in 36 hours so he it doesn't matter he can take the biggest dump he he can imagine and the whiff of it is gone in 2 days because we've moved on to something else now I think there's damage to that because of that politically. Because, by the way, the elites, and certainly Trump, have figured this out now. They know that they can just ride anything out because our attention spans are too small. But on the sports side, I think eventually this is going to have a very deleterious effect on all sorts of sports. That the pot of gold, if you will, at the end of the rainbow is no longer nearly as big as it used to be. I'm not talking monetarily. Monetarily, they're all making more money at the pro level than they ever have. I'm talking about the glory of the moment, the iconic never-forget being part of history, being part of our cultural history. Again, other than in the Super Bowl, it's almost nonexistent. Almost every other sport now is focused only on their own demographic. They're narrow casting. They're micro casting rather than broadcasting. The Super Bowl is the last exam casting that there is. I mean, hell, I'll talk about it shortly, but the Australian Open tennis men's final was amazing, but only tennis fans are going to know about it because it happened overnight in Australia, and tennis now is a niche sport, like golf is a niche sport. Hell, baseball is now a niche sport the cubs finally won their world series after over a century and it was a done story in a day nothing has any staying power anymore which is i think it's sad and and it, and there's a bigger issue to it because it allow it weakens the fabric of our american culture and society cuz when we have nothing in common, when we have no experiences in common, it's far easier for us to be torn apart. And obviously, the Trump presidency is going to provide an awful lot of challenges in that area because we're being torn apart and torn in very different directions in all sorts of areas of life. So so that's that, the cultural aspect of the Super Bowl. From a sports perspective, this Super Bowl is also going to be very interesting because the New England Patriots who general Hayden doesn't like because he's a Steelers fan. By the way, I should have asked him. I should have asked him since Bill Belichick, the head coach of the Patriots, is so well known for his his underground spy tactics, whether or not he is the former director of the CIA, would have had any any particular insight into Belichick as a as a f- football coach. But I my sense is it's mostly cuz he's a fan. But but here's the thing about from a historical perspective in sports, the Patriots have a chance to become the greatest NFL dynasty in history. Now you can argue in a shorter period of time, you know, maybe the Steelers who won four Super Bowls in six years in the in the 70s. I know certainly General Hayden would disagree, but if the Patriots were to win this Sunday, it would be their fifth win in the Super Bowl, seven appearances with the same coach, Bill Belichick, and the same quarterback, Tom Brady. And by, oh, by the way, they would do it this year after he served a four-game suspension for the bullshit that was the flake gate. Now, that would put them in rarefied air. Nobody would ever have gotten to that level of a dynasty in an era where dynasties are almost impossible because essentially the NFL, even though – in some ways, perception-wise, it's it's the furthest thing from socialism. The way the NFL is set up, it's socialistic. It's very difficult to remain on top. It's very difficult to stay on the bottom, although tell that to the Cleveland Browns. But the reality is that it's designed for everybody to basically finish with an 8-8 eight eight record because the better teams are punished, the worst teams are lifted up from a socialistic standpoint. So in this era... For someone to go to seven Super Bowls, potentially win five of them, with the same coach and the same quarterback, that's the greatest dynasty long-term in the history of the NFL. But there's an interesting story as to how this happened that, frankly, I don't think gets nearly enough attention because it's an amazing story. You know, for most of their history, the Patriots were a crap organization. Now, they did get to two Super Bowls before the Brady era, and they lost both of them. But most people don't know that Bob Kraft, who owns the Patriots, and by the way, ESPN did a a short version of 30 for 30 on this. You can Google it and watch it. It, it, Frankly, I think it underplayed the story, mainly because it wasn't long enough. But if you're interested in, in this story, check it out on Google. But it's an amazing little factoid that no one really knows about that the whole reason why the Patriots are the greatest dynasty currently in the NFL, maybe ever, is because Michael Jackson's victory tour took a crap. I know that sounds bizarre. You're like, huh? How did that relate? Believe me, as Donald Trump might say, that's 100% true. Believe me. There, there, here's about what, what happened. Here's the short version of what happened. The Patriots were owned by the Sullivan family, who also owned the stadium. The Sullivan family, and I don't understand how this happened because the Sullivans were like the geekiest white guys on the planet. They somehow got involved with Michael Jackson, and specifically I think it was Don King. (laughs) So here these geeky white guys are. They get involved in a business deal with the biggest snake on the planet, Don King, who now, by the way, is meeting with President-elects. Uh, in doing joint press conferences with Donald Trump, as he did about a month ago, which is just incredibly strange, but that's the world we're now living in. So Don King takes the Sullivans for a ride and convinces them to promote the Michael Jackson victory tour in a huge way in a deal that was obviously very poorly structured from their perspective. The victory tour tanks big time. They lose a boatload of money. Well, guess who was literally on the periphery of Sullivan Stadium and the Patriots? A guy by the name of Robert Kraft. Kraft owned the parking. He didn't own the stadium. He didn't own the team. He owned the parking. Now, I knew Robert Kraft. I don't know. My father knew Robert Kraft fairly well, doing business with him. But Robert Kraft weirdly got me my first job in broadcasting I worked as an intern in 1998, 1988, whoa, a long time ago, 1988, best summer of my life as an intern at the CBS television affiliate in Boston, Massachusetts, where I got to do some amazing things on the sports side, covering the Red Sox every single day during a, a run to a division title. The U.S. Open golf tournament was in Boston that, that year. Really, probably my best summer by far of my life, and it was indirectly because of Robert Kraft. So Robert Kraft is sitting there with the parking lot. The Sullivans now all of a sudden are in a big financial difficulty because of Michael Jackson's victory tour. So Kraft leverages the fact that he already owns the parking to buy the stadium from them because they needed cash. Now, once Kraft has the parking lot and the stadium, now he's got the Sullivans by the balls because this is virtually almost all the revenue that comes in from the team. And by the way, it allows him to eventually purchase the Patriots team itself for less money than anybody else could do because he's already owning the stadium and the parking lot. So he uses the parking lot to get the stadium. He uses the stadium to get the team. The Sullivans are bounced out. They draft Tom Brady. They hire Bill Belichick, although they did that in opposite order. They hire Bill Belichick. They they, they draft Tom Brady in like the sixth round or whatever the hell it was. And now the rest is history. And it's all because Michael Jackson had a horrendous victory tour and Don King took the Sullivan family for a ride. That's life for you right there. By the way, one other football note. Tonight, Sunday, as we record this podcast, talk about socialism. The Pro Bowl is on tonight. While the NFL itself is socialism in its structure, my yearly rant on the Pro Bowl is the Pro Bowl is the most important, if you looked at it philosophically, the most important politically-oriented sporting event that there is, and I guarantee I'm the only one that, that even looks at it this way. You're like, what? John, what are you talking about? What does the Pro Bowl have to do with socialism? A lot. Because the Pro Bowl has become a flipping joke. It is the worst sporting event that there is. It, never, it wasn't, by the way, it didn't always used to be this way. The Pro Bowl used to be a legitimate football game where the All-Stars from one conference played the All-Stars from the other conference, and they actually, it was pretty legitimate. They actually tackled. They actually tried to win. That was when the players weren't making millions of dollars a year. Now, because the players are making a ridiculous amount of money, they are already famous as they could really want to be. A trip to Hawaii, which they don't even play the game in there anymore, doesn't mean that much to them. Now, the game is a complete and total joke. They don't even try. In fact, they don't even pretend to try. That's the most amazing part. You know, you could fake it. You could fake trying, but they don't even fake trying. Why? Because they don't have to, because there's no incentive. And what it shows is, it's in the human condition. Even when you have these finely tuned athletes who have been trained their entire lives to win and kill the opposition, Here you put them on national television in the game that they love, the game they played their whole lives, and if they don't have an incentive, they won't do anything. They won't lift a finger, they won't even pretend to care. And that's relevant because that's why socialism doesn't work. Because when you eliminate incentives, human beings will stop working, they'll stop trying effort will be gone and they'll just sit on their ass because they have no nothing to gain and everything to risk. And you might get injured. So why would I bother trying? If I'm going to get paid the same amount of money if I try or I don't, guess what? I'm not going to do anything. It's human nature. Now I mentioned tennis. The Australian Open. Wow, what a shame that um, this happened overnight in an era where you know, the Australian Open is on ESPN and rebroadcast on ESPN two, And no one really cares about tennis anymore. And I guess in the Trump era, we're only supposed to care if Americans are involved, but I used to be a big tennis fan back in the the McEnroe and Connors Borg era. Like a lot of Americans were back when, you know, we had communal, like Wimbledon was a communal event. Now it's like just for tennis fans, but wow, Roger Federer, age of 35 years old, Oldest person in the modern era of tennis to win a major title. Wins his 18th title, being Rafa Nadal, who, by the way, is 30, which is supposed to be over the hill in tennis. In a five-set thriller, Federer comes back from being behind in the fifth set. And so now here we have Federer winning his 18th major title, five years, almost five years since he won a major championship. An amazing story. And by the way, Same thing on the women's side. Here are the ages of the four finalists of the men and women. Federer 35, Nadal 30. Serena Williams wins her 23rd title at the age of 36 and beats her sister Venus at 37. This is a sport where you're supposed to be old at 28 or 29. It's amazing. And yet, no one seems to really care. It's a shame. It's a shame because, again, it all goes back to what I talked about with regard to the Super Bowl. Everything's a niche. And when everything's a niche, then we don't share in it, and it loses its significance. It loses its power. It fades away almost immediately. I mean, my God, when Jack Nicholas won the Masters in 1986, there were only basically four TV channels. Everybody was watching. If you weren't watching, your friends told you about it. It was a big deal at the age of 46 in 1986 for Jack Nicklaus to win his last major championship, the Masters. Well, this is essentially what happened with Roger Frederick at the Australian Open, only maybe under more dramatic circumstances. And other than tennis fans, almost no one's going to care. By the way, speaking of golf, Tiger Woods attempted to make his comeback this week. And unlike Federer, although I got to believe that Tiger's looking at Federer going, hell, I can do that. I, I'm 41, but golf is different than tennis. Federer took some time off from the tour. I took a year and a half off. I, I can do this. Well, yeah, no, Tiger, you can't. Uh, Tiger came back to San Diego, the site of some of his greatest triumphs, including the 2008 U.S. Open to play in the uh, the P.J. Tour event at Torrey Pines in San Diego, and he missed the cut. Didn't even come close, really. Missed it by four shots. Showed no signs of his former greatness. I, agree, I get it that there's still rust to, to get rid of, and I'm sure he'll still have flashes of semi-greatness in the future, but it's clear to me, as I've been saying for years, Tiger Woods is done. He is toast, both physically and mentally, and he's now playing in a very different game, very different sport than when he dominated. The players are much better. The technology is much better. The swings are much faster. It is a far more athletic game. He can no longer beat people simply by being the best athlete because his body won't let him, and age also plays a factor, and he also has a lot of scar tissue from things like one of the worst divorces in the history of, of public life and just uh, life in general. So as much of a, a fan as I used to be of Tiger Woods, I'm still maintaining that he is done. It is over for him, although it still will be interesting to see how long he tries before he himself is convinced of what I think is the overwhelming reality that it's over for Tiger Woods. By the way, one last point on that. I mentioned the 2008 U.S. Open. Think back to how much life has changed since Tiger Woods won the U.S. Open in June of 2008. He won that U.S. Open with a broken leg. A broken leg, he wins the U.S. Open to win his 14th major title. At that moment, George W. Bush was president of the United States. Barack Obama was the very likely Democratic presidential nominee, but he was still probably, I don't know, a 60-40 at best chance to win the presidency. If someone had told me (laughs) when Tiger Woods won that U.S. Open with a broken leg, "Uh, here's the deal, Zig. Tiger will never win another major championship. The next two presidents will be Barack Hussein Obama and Donald Trump. And at the start of the Trump presidency, Tiger will return to Tory Pines, ranked 662nd in the world. I think I would have taken that bet. I think I would have put all my chips on that one. And uh, I would be a completely broke man because that's the bizarreness of the world in which we're now living, which is part of why we have this podcast, which we call The World According to Zig. Now, I, I do this podcast totally for free. I only ask you for two things, and they're very simple. If you like the podcast, share it. Share it on Twitter. Tweet it. If you tag me, I'll retweet it. Share it on Facebook. I'll do the same thing let people know about it because it's really the only way people are going to know about the podcast. And if you think it has value, let people know. The second is when I'm done, just listen to the message at the beginning and the end of the podcast hour, especially if you're one of those people who, you know, actually sleeps. And when you sleep, you actually use sheets. Cause you'll, you'll thank me for it. So it's an important message. Stay tuned for that until next week. Have a good one. Enjoy the Super Bowl. We'll be back with another podcast next Sunday. Until then, I'm John Ziegler.
0: Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. (laughs) Performance bedding? (laughs) Yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. (laughs) Well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. (laughs) (laughs) Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com.